been promised that Antaeus will set us down on the final floor of hell. But not yet. We've still got a little bit of a distance to cross. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we are truly slow. (laughs) Slow. Walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Inferno, Canto 31. We are coming to the back of it. We're at lines 112 through 129. We have come through all the circles of violence. We have come through all the many circles of fraud in the eighth circle of hell. And now we are in a liminal spot between the eighth and ninth circles, approaching giants who line the final pit. This is a passage that is is a little bit complicated because it has some strange literary and classical references inside of it. I want to talk about those. I want to talk about the question of titans in this passage, something that I've brought up in the past and have skirted around. If you want to find the English language translation for this podcast, it is my own. An attempt to bring the medieval Florentine into modern English, not paying attention to the rhyme and rhythm, which is admittedly, to use Dante's word, a sin. But it is the closest I can get to modern conversational English. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com, where you can drop a comment or just read along. So let's take off at lines 112 through 129 of Canto 31 of Inferno. We walked a little farther at that point and came to Antaeus who stood, not counting his head, a good five L's above the edge of the pit's rock wall. Oh, you who were once in the fortune-filled valley, where Scipio was made an heir of glory, where Hannibal and his cohorts turned tail, you who snagged a thousand lions as your prey, and you who... If you'd been with your brothers during their war on heaven, at least so some believe, would have won the victory for the children of the earth. Don't be too haughty to set us down below where Cocytus lies locked in ice. Don't make us tramp on to Titius or Typhon. This guy right here can give you what anyone really wants. So come on, bend down, and don't sneer with your snout. This guy can keep you famous up in the world because he's alive and hopes to live out a long life unless Grace calls him back before his time. Long speech from Virgil to Antaeus standing at the pit, standing in the pit. Let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about these giants a bit more and then look at this strange set of cross-current literary references that go on inside this pit, including the references to Titius and Typhon, who we don't see, but we find out are inside this pit. Let's first talk about titans, because I have used this word a bit loosely in this podcast, and I was called out for it by someone, and that is actually a beautiful thing. I appreciate the call-out, because truly, these figures here who line the pit are not 
Titans, at least in the strictly mythological sense. Here's the problem. The strictly mythological sense would not be known to Dante. He would know a looser definition of Titans. Let me explain this. We now think of the Titans as the pre-Olympians, those who were particularly the children of Uranus and Gaia. These pre-Olympian god figures who are ultimately vanquished by the Olympians. Uranus and Gaia have a whole set of children. There are 12 of them listed by Hesiod in his Chronicle of the Titans. Hesiod is writing more or less probably around the time of Homer, assuming there is a single person named Hesiod. And he's compiling this story of the Titans' defeat at the hands of the Olympian gods. Well, their revolt, their war, and then finally their defeat at the hands of the Olympian gods. By the time we get even to Homer, around the same time, we're finding this notion of who exactly is on this list of Titans fudged a bit. We find this fudged a bit inside of Homer's epics. By the time we get up to Plato, the notion of Titans has really changed. And in fact, some figures are being included as Titans. Those 12 original lists from Hesiod had changed. Some are being dropped off and forgotten. And by the time we get to the Middle Ages, the notion of Titans has changed intensely and entirely. Many of the early commentators identify these figures around the pit as, in fact, Titans. However, none of these is listed in Hesiod's chronicle of the Titan war against the Olympian gods, but Dante doesn't know Hesiod's chronicle of the Titans' war against the Olympian gods. If I wanted to be completely accurate, I would refer to none of these figures as Titans, but I'm basing my complete accuracy on Hesiod, which we now know. These are, without a doubt, giant figures. Dante may think of some of them as Titans. Some of them are children of Gaia, Earth. You can see there's a problem fudging the line here. What I think that is most important to know is what we've already covered, and that is Dante has found a way in which a biblical figure, Nimrod, crosses with classical literature. And I believe that intersection of classical literature and biblical literature is what is most exciting to Dante. Let's look at the passage itself. It starts, we walked a little farther at this point. So they've seen Nimrod. Dante has asked about Briarius. He's been told that Briarius <laughs> looks just like others, but more, but is fiercer in the face than others. Oh, it's a whole big problem of literary source work that we talked about in the last episode of this podcast. And then he's been told that Antaeus will set them down. And Antaeus is not bound, he's been told, and can in fact speak, unlike Nimrod, who doesn't speak, and Ephialtes, who apparently shudders but can't language or can't speak. And they finally come up to Antaeus, and we have this line, he is a good five L's above the edge of the pit's rock wall. An L is a very specific length. Unfortunately, it is also a very changeable length. It's not 
actually a common or accepted length across the European landscape. It can be one arm's length. It can be two. It can be two and a half. Some of the early commentators seem to believe that Dante would use the Flemish L, and the Flemish L is about 27 inches long or 68 centimeters. Now, how they know that Dante would use the Flemish L as opposed to the English L or the Swedish L or other Germanic L's, that's a huge question. I think some of the early commentators claim that the Flemish L, because of trade, was common in Florence. And so this is the measurement Dante would use. I want to just reference here the incredible precision of measurement. While it is, of course, difficult to use modern precision in a medieval context, as we approach the bottom of hell, it seems so important that everything is so well measured. Let me just say what's ahead for a second, and uh, perhaps this bears in on it. We're about to enter the ninth circle of hell, and the ninth circle of hell has four rings to it, four subsets, in the way that violence has three subsets and fraud has ten subsets. The ninth circle has four subsets, but these subsets are not well demarcated. Remember up in violence, the circles, the subcircles of violence, how well demarcated they were? I mean, you know, we passed from the boiling river of blood where the plunderers and the marauders and the mass murderers and even the commonplace highwaymen all were stuck in this river of boiling blood. And then we passed into the forest of the suicides. And then we passed out onto the burning sands where the blasphemous and the homosexuals and the usurers all were. And these are very distinct subsets. In the ninth circle ahead of us, the subsets are not distinct, and it's hard to tell them apart. It could be that we are being set up for this kind of boundaryless expanse that is the ninth circle of hell by here and in Cantos before us being given so many precise measurements. In other words, the precision is leading us to a moment in which we truly notice the imprecision, the blurred boundaries, the way it's hard to tell where one subset starts and another stops and then another starts. It's hard to tell the differentiation amongst them. That could be a function of the unbelievably precise, although it may bother us, precise measurements as we approach the ninth circle. Once we have the height of Antaeus nailed down, <laughs> sort of, kind of, a little bit, slightly, Virgil launches into this long speech, and it is a way of flattering Antaeus and flattering Antaeus to get Antaeus to actually reach down, grab up the pilgrim and his guide Virgil, and set them down on the final circle of hell. Virgil's speech begins with three instances of flattery and then doesn't seem to work, backfires, backs up twice again. We want to talk through all that. So let's just talk through the three levels of flattery, starting with the first one. 
Virgil's trying to get Antaeus to do something. And it, as in old medieval tradition, you flatter someone rhetorically really well. You butter them up so that they'll actually do something for you. Here, Virgil starts out, Oh, you, Antaeus, who were once in the fortune-filled valley where Scipio was made an heir of glory when Hannibal and his cohorts turned tail. This is the Bagrada Valley, or as it would now be called in northern Tunisia, the Medjeda Valley, or sometimes pronounced in English Medjerdab. This is the spot where during the Second Punic War, Scipio firmly defeated Hannibal. It's a famous battle. It was in 202 BCE. It really was a prime Roman victory. Let me just explain kind of what happened because I kind of find it fascinating in terms of warfare. Usually in Roman warfare and especially here against Carthage, the traditional warfare would be to line up your troops in parallel lines. So Scipio, the Roman, would line his troops up in, you know, one line and then the Carthaginians with Hannibal would line up on the other side in a line and then the two lines would attack each other. But remember, Hannibal has elephants. (laughs) Don't forget that part of the story. Hannibal has elephants and those elephants are marauding beasts that tramp everything, ruin bulwarks, ruin all kinds of weaponry, and and kind of are unstoppable. So what Scipio does is instead of positioning his troops as a parallel line, he positions his troops as a series of perpendicular lines facing Hannibal's troops. And they dig pits so that as Hannibal's troops attack, the elephants stumble into those pits because, of course, you're going to head right for the line of troops, each line of troops. The animals stumble in those pits. They're brought down. Of course, the first Romans of Scipio's troops would be slaughtered in this, but then there would be all of these backups, almost like bullets in a gun chamber, right? There would be all these backups in a line behind it. And it is this strategy that allowed Scipio to so thoroughly defeat Hannibal that Hannibal turns tail, goes away, basically lives for the rest of his life in exile, does commit suicide, but probably somewhere around 183 BCE. And Scipio returns to Rome and gets the title Africanus because of this great battle. So Virgil's first flattery is a piece of the Second Punic War. Did Antaeus take part in this battle? No. Antaeus lived in the valley where this happened. How exactly is this flattery for Antaeus? We'll talk about in a minute. But Virgil's first move is to say, you who were in the fortune-filled valley where Scipio was made an heir of glory when Hannibal and his cohorts turned tail. I mean, guy, you lived in this very place where this famous battle was fought that essentially brought to an end the Second Punic War, one of Rome's great victories. Dude, you lived there. That's the first bit of flattery. Let's skip on to the next bit. Actually, let's skip to the third 
bit of flattery because the second bit is a little problematic. So Virgil first says, you lived in the right place, guy. I mean, famous place. Then he says something about capturing lions as their prey. We're going to come back to that. And then he has a third line of flattery for Antaeus. He says, you, if you'd been with your brothers during their war on heaven, notice yet another war. So Virgil's first and third bits of flattery are about war. Or, Virgil says, at least so some believe, thereby nudging, is this war with the Titans the truth? And is what I'm about to say the truth? You would have won the victory for the children of the earth. And we should think here, children of the earth, as very specific. Remember, Titans are the children of Gaia Earth. So, The claim being made here is that if Antaeus had joined in with the Titans, they would have won because Antaeus is so dramatic, so fearsome, so strong that the Titans would have indeed defeated the Olympians. Where is Virgil getting this material? He's getting it from the Pharsalia, from Lucan's Pharsalia. And Virgil is essentially quoting the Pharsalia repeatedly in this passage. And in fact, I would like to read that bit to you. This is out of the Jane Wilson Joyce translation of the Pharsalia. I'm at book four, and I'm starting at about line 590 At this point, Curio has come to Africa and has come to this very place, Antaeus' kingdom. So, since he, now I'm in the Pharsalia, he, Curio, was curious to learn the source of this ancient name, Antaeus' kingdom, a local rustic imparted the tale told by his forebears. And here, the Pharsalia drops into the tale of the folk tale of Antaeus. Still not barren, after birthing the giants, Earth... Gaia, Earth, conceived a terrible progeny deep in Libya's caves, nor did the primal mother have such cause to boast of Typhon, Titius, or fierce Briareus. She spared heaven when she failed to send Antaeus out to Phlegra's battlefield. On her dear offspring's already mountainous strength, Earth piled this further boom that whenever he touched his mother, his limbs, though long since wearied, would freshen their vigor renewed. This is this bit about Antaeus that as long as he's touching the ground, his mother Gaia Earth... He's going to continually renew his strength. The claim is being made that Antaeus is so strong that he, had, if he joined his brothers, they would have, in fact, defeated the Olympian gods. And that claim is in the Pharsalia. That's where Virgil's getting it. Now, there's a bit of a problem here. Uh, we want to talk about why this is a problem in just a second. But let's look at the second, the intermediary flattery line. You who snagged a thousand lions as your prey. First, you lived where Scipio defeated Hannibal. Second, you're so fierce you could take a thousand lions as your prey. And third, if you joined your brothers, you could have defeated the Olympian gods. Fine enough. Let this line. You snagged a thousand lions at your prey. This is such an intriguing line because it's picked up from the Pharsalia, from this very folktale story I was just reading you. But nowhere in the story does it say a thousand. 
Instead, Virgil adds. Remember, we just came out of a bit where Virgil corrected the Aeneid about Briarius? Uh, Don't worry about him. He looks like all the rest. When in Virgil's own Aeneid, he's the 50-headed, 100-armed monster. Here, Virgil doesn't correct the Pharsalia so much as he edits it, or he adds to it, or he embellishes it, or he furthers the flattery by adding a thousand. This is all very curious because Virgil cannot have read the Pharsalia. Cannot have read the Pharsalia unless he read it in limbo. Virgil finished the Aeneid somewhere around 19 BCE, and the Pharsalia was written in 61 CE, 61 Common Era. They're approximately 80 years apart, and Virgil is long dead when the Pharsalia is written. Surely, Dante has a little bit of a wink here. Surely Dante the poet is standing behind all of this laughing just a little bit because A, Virgil is attempting to flatter this giant. B, Virgil is quoting a work he could have never read. And C, Virgil is embellishing the work that he is quoting that he could have never read. Surely you see the wild and crazy cross currents of literary tradition that are running under here. I want to tell you that many, many early commentators are at many pains to say that this entire bit is not ironic. There's nothing funny here. Don't laugh at it. I can't not. It's got to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. For Virgil to try to flatter this giant, we want to talk about that more in a minute. Let's look away from the flattery for just a second and look at our first glimpse of the final ring of hell. Virgil says, don't be too haughty to set us down below where Cocytus, that's the name of the final ring of hell. It gets a name. Cocytus. We had a pit fraud with named pouches, the Malabolgia, but this pit that we're coming to is named Cocytus. We're going to talk much more about that in future episodes, but this is our first actual visual glimpse of it, where Cocytus lies locked in ice. This is the first time we learn that the final pit of hell is an ice sheet. I know you're going to say, but isn't the core of the earth hot? Okay, you know you know what? You, you live in the 21st century. You know that. Dante doesn't. Instead, for Dante, the core of the earth is ice, and we are coming to the very center of the earth. And yes, Dante knows it's a sphere. We'll talk more about that in episodes ahead, too. But we are coming to the center of the earth, and it is an ice sheet, and we just got our first glimpse of the terrible, slick, cold, and as we'll find out, windy landscape ahead of us. Virgil goes on and says, don't make us tramp on to Titius and Typhon. Let's just unpack those just really quickly. Titius is a giant. He is uh, most known for his desecration of Latona. He is then punished by her children, Apollo and Diana. He's cast into Tartarus. And in 
Tartarus. He has his liver forever plucked out by vultures. By the way, this is the first known notion in medical history that a liver can regenerate. Just take that for what it's worth. Typhon is an even worse figure. Typhon is the child of Gaia, Earth, but the child of Gaia and Tartarus. There are many traditions of what Typhon is and what Typhon looks like. Mostly what we can say is that he has a hundred heads. These heads are probably fire-breathing. <laughs> so really bad dude. A hundred heads. They probably breathe fire. His body is all made out of snakes from the waist down. He may have snake heads instead of hands. I mean, this is a really dastardly figure. He attempts to overthrow the Olympian gods. Jupiter makes war on him, with him. Jupiter wins, defeats Typhon. And in many accounts, Jupiter stows the body of Typhon underneath what is now Mount Etna. And the reason Etna erupts is because Typhon is struggling to get free with all of his fire-breathing heads. The important thing here that we should know is that Titius and Typhon come up in that passage that I just read you from the Pharsalia. It's further tying us to the Pharsalia. And while, yes, these are giants on around the pit that we will never see, we will never get to, the important thing is we are constantly being brought back to Lucan's Pharsalia. We're going to explore that more fully in the next episode of this podcast, but it's just so curious that all the details that Virgil cites, again, come from Lucan's Pharsalia. Apparently, all that praising doesn't do any good because apparently Antaeus raises his snout <laughs> and sneers. He sneers with his snout. It's such a bestial, gross, monsterly kind of phrasing. All of this flattery, and the guy turns his lip up and is like, no, I don't want to set you down on the floor. You, you know, go away. <laughs> go on to Typhon. Maybe that hundred-headed fire-breathing thing will help you out. And so Virgil has to continue on with the flattery. But this time, it is not flattery from the Pharsalia. It's flattery from Dante's own work. Virgil says, this guy right here can give you what anyone really wants. So come on, bend down and don't sneer with your snout. This guy can keep you famous up in the world. Oh, there's the problem. Because he, this guy, Dante, the pilgrim, the guy walking, this guy's alive and hopes to live out a long life unless grace calls him back before his time. Remember last time I said, is there really anything at stake? Well, maybe the poet realizes there does have to be something at stake here. So even Virgil seems to admit that perhaps the pilgrim and maybe the poet could suffer an untimely death. I think what's so interesting here about the irony in the passage is that Virgil's flattery from the Pharsalia doesn't work. We have a poet who can't get the job done. And although this poet is quoting another poet, this poet can't get what he wants until he turns to yet a third poet, a living poet, and uses that as the flattery. And I should tell you that this is the flattery that works, because in the next passage, in the next episode of this podcast, they're going to get set down 
onto the ice sheet of Cocytus. Robert Hollander, the late eminent dentista, claims that Virgil is at a distinct disadvantage here. And let me explain this. Hollander claims that Virgil was actually in an upper-handed position when he spoke to Ulysses because Virgil had written about Ulysses. Now, maybe Virgil didn't write the most flattering stuff about Ulysses in the Aeneid, but still, nonetheless, Virgil has kept Ulysses' name alive. And so when Ulysses shows up with the false counselors, Virgil is on um, good ground with him. You know, hey, dude, I'm somebody who wrote about you in my poem. I've kept your name alive. Virgil has never written about Antaeus. There is an Antaeus in the Aeneid, but it's not this Antaeus. There is a soldier named Antaeus, and he dies pretty quickly, basically comes into the Aeneid and is slaughtered by Aeneas and his troops almost instantly when he arrives on the scene. That's not this Antaeus. And so Virgil is at a disadvantage because he's never written about this figure again. And the only way to talk about this figure is to go out and find other poets who have written about this figure, which Virgil then maybe doesn't even trust because he feels the need to embellish it. A thousand lines. Well, Lucan didn't say a thousand. He said he captures lions as his prey. He didn't say a thousand lines. Virgil is making the text even more elaborate and florid. He's adding to it. And Virgil's flattery is not all that flattering. Go back and think about what Virgil just said. And I'm taking this from Robert Hollander. Virgil just said... Uh, you killed a lot of lions right in the place where the Romans won one of their most significant military victories ever, and you didn't join the war with your brothers who were killed by the Olympian gods. That doesn't sound much like flattery, does it? Well, you, you took a lot of lions, and yeah, it's a famous place. And hey, the, the people I wrote about, the Trojans who became the Romans, that's one of their most decisive military victories in that place. And oh, yeah, yeah, you weren't with your brothers when they did that heroic thing of storming the gods. Oh, oh well, at least you took a lot of lions. Hollander claims that Virgil's flattery is very hollow. It might be hollow, now I'm adding this part, because it's based on Lucan, and there might be a poetic rivalry going on here between Virgil and Lucan. It might be hollow because Virgil doesn't really know that much about Antaeus. It might be hollow because Virgil, in the end, doesn't trust the Pharsalia. There's all kinds of interesting and wild problems. And as I told you, the early commentators are at some pains to avoid any notion of irony here, but it's so redolent in the passage. Virgil is not proving terribly persuasive, and so, and this is the kick, and so he resorts to invoking Dante's own work. Virgil succeeds because of the promise of Dante's greater success. Surely you can see the poet wink at us. He's got his literary master basically failing at the task to get them onto the floor of hell and having to revert to saying, oh, this guy's going to write a really big work. And if you do it, he'll put you in it and he'll make you still famous up in the world above. As indeed he is, because here we are still talking about Antaeus. 
It's such a wild passage. The 31st Canto is just so wild all over. Let me read it to you one more time in my translation, lines 112 through 129 of Canto 31 of Inferno. And you can hear, again, the wild cross-currents working inside this passage. We walked a little farther at that point and came to Antaeus, who stood, not counting his head, a good five L's above the edge of the pit's rock wall. Oh, you, who were once in the fortune-filled valley where Scipio was made an heir of glory when Hannibal and his cohorts turned tail, you, who snagged a thousand lions as your prey, and you, who, if you'd been with your brothers during their war on heaven, or at least so some believe, would have won the victory for the children of the earth, don't be too haughty to set us down below where Cocytus lies locked in ice. Don't make us tramp on to Titius and Typhon. This guy right here can give you what anyone really wants. So come on, bend down. Don't sneer with your snout. This guy can keep you famous up in the world because he's alive and hopes to live out a long life unless Grace calls him back before his time. That's the passage almost to the back of Canto 31. As I told you, this is one of my favorite cantos in all of Inferno. It is so complicated, so meta, so many layers of meaning, so difficult to find out the motivations of the characters. Murky because it's medieval. Murky because so many literary traditions are crossing over each other. So... Let us continue walking through the murk. In order to do that, you have to subscribe to this podcast. Rate it, like it, give it a like. That would be fabulous. Give it a review. Drop down to the bottom of the Apple or Audible menu. You can see there, write a review, click that. Even just great podcast or thanks a lot would certainly help a lot with the analytics. I certainly appreciate it. But mostly, I appreciate that you're on this journey with me. It just means a great deal to me that we are walking with Dante together. Thank you for doing that. And I will see you for the final moments of Canto 31 on the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. We'll get there very soon. Bye.